Father, I also echo the prayer that was made already. Uh, we are going through a crisis in the world, and we do ask that you give us wisdom as to how we can handle the situation. And, and indeed, it can stir up fear in us and, and panic. However, Lord, let us not panic. Let us be prepared. Let us not be anxious, but be alert. And so, Lord, help us to be Christians. Help us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth at this time, learning what it means to love you, O Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learning to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, Lord, even right now, as we turn to your word, we trust that, God, despite what is going on in this world, you will speak to us, and you have spoken to us through your holy word. And I ask that, please, Lord, uh, that we would not get distracted, but that we would be able to listen to what you have to say as we look at Ruth this morning. I do pray that, God, would you please open up the eyes of our heart that we may be able to behold the wondrous things that come out of your word. And I also pray that, would you please teach us your ways, O oh Lord, that we may walk in your truth to unite our hearts to fear your name. And I also pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. And what an interesting time for me to begin a new sermon series on the book of Ruth. And if you don't know where the book of Ruth is, it's found in the Old Testament. It's actually one of the shortest books in the Bible. It is found in between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And I don't know about you, but the book of Ruth is probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is famously known as the love story of Scripture. And some of you may already be familiar with this story and others of you are maybe not be familiar with this short story. And so I encourage you during this week to spend the time reading through it, reading through, through this amazing story. For those of you who are familiar with this, let me caution you with this. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. You can miss a whole lot of things in this book if you only focus on the love aspect of this story. Of course, we can focus on Ruth and Boaz as the characters of the story. And in fact, this book is named after Ruth. But let me suggest to you that Naomi should be regarded as the central character in this story because she lost everything in the beginning but God blessed her and gave her fullness in the end through Boaz and Ruth. Certainly, there is love in this story and how God brought Boaz and Ruth together to be married. But that's not the main point of this story. This story is not about how you can be a Ruth in order to get a Boaz or how you can be a Boaz in order to get a Ruth. Behind this little story is an overarching story of God's plan of redemption. God is mysteriously weaving through the mundane life 
and the mundane circumstances of the characters to accomplish his ultimate plan of salvation in bringing the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save and to redeem sinners. This is the mystery of providence. This is the main point of the story of the book of Ruth. And so this morning, we will be looking at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1 of Ruth. And I, and I titled this message, From Trouble to Tragedy to Termination. And in this passage, we will discover the trouble, the tragedy, and the termination. And so with your Bible in hand, let us read verses 1 to 2. And in verses 1 to 2, we will discover the trouble. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So, the story does not begin with once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince named Boaz lived in the land of Bethlehem. No, that's not how the story begins. We are told that the book of Ruth took place in the days when the judges ruled. This is describing the book of Judges, which is the previous book before Ruth. You see, this phrase in the days when the judges ruled, this is describing the historical background when the judges were ruling Israel. It took place sometime in 1400 BC after the death of Joshua and until 1100 BC during the rise of Samuel and Saul. This is not only describing the historical background of, this, of judges, but it is also describing the theological background in other words, what was the spiritual condition of Israel? During the days of Joshua, the Israelites served and obeyed God for the most part. After the death of Joshua, however, we are told this in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Can I have the next slide, please? So, so after Joshua died and after his generation died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Whenever Israel commits sin and commit idolatry, God will, dis will bring discipline and judgment upon his people by sending enemies to conquer over them. And afterwards, Israel will cry out to God for help. And God will raise up a deliverer known as the judges, to save them from their enemies. 
the judge will then rule and give rest to God's people and give rest to the land. And after the judges die, the cycle of rebellion repeats again. The spiritual and moral decline spirals down in Israel. And even the judges, they were not perfect as well. The judges would go from being heroic like Ehud and Othniel to someone like Samson, who was rebellious and reckless, who was anything but a hero. And I can't even begin to describe all the examples of Israel's immorality and wickedness because those examples will be classified as rated R due to its intense gore and its intense violence. In the final verse of Judges, if you look at the final verse of Judges, it ends like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that phrase is repeated four times after the 17th chapter of Judges. And doesn't that describe our postmodern society? Most people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They have their own truth. They have their own morality. They're their own little gods, their own, their own little queens, their own little kings. This was the background to the story of Ruth. Israel was at a dark place in a dark time. The story immediately begins with trouble, a crisis, a critical situation, and a hot mess. First, there's spiritual and moral corruption. And second, if you notice in verse 1, there's famine in the land, including Bethlehem and Judah. And for those of you who are not familiar with the original language of the Old Testament, which is Hebrew. Hebrew is a language that likes to use word pictures, word pictures. And in the book of Ruth, one of the literary devices that the narrator likes to use is irony. Now, Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem is a combination of two Hebrew words, Beit and Lachem, which literally means the house of bread. The house of bread. Beit means house. Lachem means bread. Now, that is a word picture. You can picture it in your mind. And the irony found here in this verse is that there is a famine in the house of bread. How is that possible? How is it possible to say, oh, sorry, there's no bread in the house of bread anymore? That's like saying you visit Costco and they ran out of food. But, it's probably, but right now, it's probably more appropriate to say they ran out, they're running out of toilet papers and Lysos with the current crisis in this world. The narrator does not tell the readers why there was a famine, but there may be clues in the Old Testament. So remember, Israel was in a dark place in a dark time. They were going through rebellious time. The Lord warned his people in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that he will curse them for their, for their disobedience. And part of that curse, part of the curse of disobedience was famine. 
in the midst of this trouble, in the midst of this crisis, we are introduced to a family, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion. And this passage zooms in and focuses on Elimelech, who is the man of the family. And despite the trouble and despite the crisis that Israel was going through, how would Elimelech respond to the situation and lead his family? Will he start praying to the Lord, Lord, please guide me and please lead me. Give me wisdom as to how I can lead this family. Or, and will he read God's word, read the first five books of the Old Testament and seek wisdom from God and say, well, despite what I'm going through in the world, despite what's happening in Israel, I trust that the Lord will provide for my needs and I trust that God would help my family. Well, the text tells us that this family sojourned in a country of Moab and remained and lived there. Now, the narrator does not give us the reason for why he moved his family to Moab. Perhaps he thought, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side in Moab. Perhaps he thought he could find food, find job opportunities, and provide for his family. And as the leader of the family, he wants what is best for them. Don't we all? And if you were in that situation, you, will, you might do the same too. But did Elimelech make the right move or the wrong move? Was it right for him to move his family or was it wrong for him to move his family to Moab? And then moving away from the land of Israel and moving away from the community of God's people. Let me just be clear. Is for, us, for us as Christians, I don't think it's wrong. It's definitely not wrong for us to move to another country for work opportunities if the Lord provides that for us. And I'm not saying that fleeing from another country and finding refuge is, from an, in another country is wrong. But it may have been wrong for Elimelech to do so. Now, lest you think I'm being a little bit too harsh on him, let me remind you of the background. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, including Elimelech. And so in this passage, we discover the first irony of there being a famine in Bethlehem, the house of Israel. There is actually a second irony in this passage. Namely, what is the meaning of the name Elimelech? The name Elimelech means, my God is king. My God is king. But he did not live up to his name, did he? He did what was right in his own eyes. And then he moved his family to Moab as if the Lord was not his king. As if the Lord was not the king over his, was not king over his life. As if there was no such thing as king. There's no God in Israel. And so he chose to travel about 80 kilometers southeast just to, south, just, to, just to sojourn and live in Moab. Why Moab? If you know anything about Moab, no, Moab was a nation, was, the, was a nation that was in enmity with Israel. It was a nation that worshipped false gods. 
It was a nation that originated with incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter back in Genesis chapter 19. And you want to bring your family there and raise your children there? Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we are like Elimelech. We may sing when we acknowledge that my God is king, but is he truly your king every moment of your life? Do you obey him without any reservation and hesitation, despite cultural pressures? Do you fear the Lord, or do you, have, or do you fear men? When trouble or crisis hits you, how will you respond to it? Do you turn to scripture to inform the way you make decisions in life? It is easy to give lip service to that God is our king, but the way we live our life will expose whether or not my God is king. So we just learned about the trouble in verses 1 to 2. And now we, we will learn about the second point we discover in the story, and that is the tragedy. The tragedy in verses 3 to 5a. Let's read together. But Elimelech, the house of Naomi, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. Let's focus on Elimelech for a bit. Elimelech died. He died. What happened? Why did he die? How did he die? How long did this family live in Moab before he died? The narrator does not tell us. And Jewish interpretation will interpret that Elimelech transgressed or he sinned against the Lord. But I cannot say with 100% certainty, but it is quite possible that Elimelech experienced the judgment and the wrath of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, you won't be able to see this in the English translation, so, but you would need to do a word study on the word left in Hebrew. So in verse 3, you will notice that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she, Naomi, was left, or the word to be left. Daniel Block, he commented on this word, and I quote, This word, left, or to be left, often speaks of bereavement at the death of another, and often refers to those who have survived the wrath and judgment of God, end quote. And if you ever do a word study on this word, you will notice that, and you will discover, for instance, that it is used five times when, it, when God sent the plagues upon Egypt, and some survived the plague, some were left. Furthermore, aside from all the theorizing and all the reasons, I just want us to focus on this. We need to experience the impact of what just happened. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. That's not good for Naomi. 
she's now a widow. And she must have felt heartbroken to bury her dead husband. She might be pondering, why did this happen to his, her husband and to her? And to her? She, she might be wondering, what is she going to do about her future now? How is she going to raise her family? Is she now going to survive with the money left over? However, there is a little bit of glimpse of hope in verse 3. There is still a little bit of hope. At the very least, she still has her two sons who can take care of her. At the very least, she still has her safety net that she can fall back on. And so now the, the focus shifts from Elimelech to Naomi. She now has the responsibility to lead and to nurture this family and to raise her two sons. And so the important thing she has to decide is, should this family stay in Moab or move back to Israel? We are told in verse 4 that this family stayed in Moab. Not only did they stay in Moab, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, took two Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And we are told in Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, that Malon would be, was the husband of Ruth. And if you have ever been to a wedding, and you would know that it is a very joyful event. Marriage is a time of celebration. And this would have given Naomi much comfort and much hope for her. A time to celebrate, a time for her to, you know, to be comforted after the death of her husband. And now that the couples are married, her two sons are now married, you know, she might be able to expect grandchildren. I mean, after living in Moab for about 10 years, should we not expect the couples to have children? Should not Naomi expect them to have children? And should she not, have, they not expect that she will have a grandchildren? Grandchildren? Well, this passage tells us that the couples never had children. Now, it is very uncommon. It's actually very uncommon in the ancient world for couples to be married for 10 years without having any children, unless the couples were able to have one. In other words, Orpah and Ruth may have been barren, which was a very shameful thing in that culture, unfortunately. And the scripture tells us that God, God himself, he opens and he closes the womb. And so God could have not blessed these couples with children. And instead of having children, the text tells us a second tragedy in the beginning of verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion died. They died. And what's even interesting is, is a third tragedy, no, third irony. The name Malon means sickness, and the name Kilion means frailty. Uh, maybe that's the last time we ever hear anyone naming their children Malon and Kilion, because who wants to name their children sickness and frailty? But we're left asking the same question as before. What happened? Why did they die? How did they die? And I'll repeat myself as before. The narrator does not tell us. 
and I, again, I cannot say with 100% certainty, but they might have experienced the judgment and the wrath of God. Because the word left, found in the middle of verse 5, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The word left is used again in verse 5, and it's the same word used in verse 3. So was it because they married Moabite women? Well, nowhere in the Old Testament were Israelites strictly forbidden from marrying Moabites. They were forbidden from marrying anyone in the land of Canaan. Yet there are principles in the Old Testament where Israelites cannot intermarry with others that serve other gods. Orpah and Ruth would have been pagans worshipping other gods, like Chemosh. And without trying to theorize the reasons, we need to come back and experience the tragedy in this story. Not only did Naomi lose her husband, she also lost her two sons. This is a time to grieve, to mourn. And I cannot imagine now what Naomi would have been thinking and feeling at this moment as she stands or sits on the graveside of her dead husband and her dead two sons. Think about it. In the beginning of this passage, you know, this family, there was a crisis that happened, and hence this family moved. This family may have wanted protection. It may have wanted security in Moab. Elimelech could have gotten a job in this country, and he wanted to immigrate his family there. And I'm sure that the couple would have loved to see their descendants. But no one in their right mind would have wanted to plan for this kind of a tragedy. No one in their right mind would want to bury their dead loved ones. And so, what are we left here in this story? What we learn about first, the trouble. And second, we just learn about the tragedy. And finally, in this story, we will learn about the termination. The termination. In verse 5, it says, Both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And what I mean by termination is reaching a point beyond in which a person cannot go. It means hitting a dead end with nowhere else to go, and all paths behind you are now obstructed. You're essentially boxed in, nowhere else to go. And in fact, you know, Ruth and Orpah should have been included in verse 5, but the narrator only focuses on the woman. There's now only one survivor in this immediate family in the beginning. And this survivor became nameless. Now, if you're using the NIV or the NLT, it would say Naomi in verse 5, but the Hebrew literally says the woman. Rather than being called by name, she's now called the woman. Okay, so what's the, what's the big deal? What's so significant? Is this is still describing the same person. Well, Robert Hubert commented, and I quote, the woman has lost all identity, end quote. Think about it. Your name carries a lot of, carries a lot of information. Your name is essentially your identity. 
and the narrator, for whatever reason, he chose to strip this woman, her identity out, removing her name, and now she's not called Naomi, she's now called the woman. She's now empty now. She has no identity now. The death of Elimelech and her two sons became a dead end for Naomi. It left her empty now. The family of four became a family of one. Naomi experienced not just a tragic loss, but a total loss. Not just a tragic loss, but a total loss. Her future is now very bleak and very bitter. She's a widow. And in the ancient world, a widow will be more susceptible to poverty and vulnerability. She does not, now, she does not have a husband to provide for her and to protect her. And furthermore, she would have been an old widow, which means that she would have been beyond her childbearing years. And so now the option to remarry is now closed off for her. It is now off limits. Because, no, because in that culture, nobody, no man would want to marry someone who cannot bear children. Because future generation, future descendants, what's in for us very important in that time. And what's also worse is that she's now childless. She does not have, a, she does not have sons anymore which was the worst fate for an Israelite woman. No children to care for her. No grandchildren to cheer her spirits. No husband to love her. All odds were now against Naomi. Sometimes God does discipline his people for sinning, and therefore he does put them to death just like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, or just like someone who took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But sometimes, a person's death is not the result of his or her sin. Death is just part of life. Death happens all the time. Death happened because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And in Romans, according to Romans 5.12, death entered into the world as a result of sin. And so in the case of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, we might not know if their death was the result of God's judgment upon their sin. It is a possibility and there are texts and there are words in the Old Testament to make a case for that. However, I do want us to look at this situation at another angle. What is quite obvious is that the narrator of this book does not state the reasons for why all these things happen. And I think that's intentional because we face the same reality of the trouble the tragedy and the termination in our own lives. We know Naomi's future is written here in the book of Ruth, but we ultimately don't know our future. And what I think the narrator is trying to do is pulling us to ask the same questions. Why God? Why am I facing a crisis? 
Why did this tragedy hit home? Why is there no way out of this dead end? Are you punishing me for my sins? And that, because that is what Naomi thought later on in the chapter. Did I do something wrong? Did my spouse and my children do something wrong? And hence, I'm suffering the consequences of their sins? Why are you allowing this virus to spread? And perhaps all these wives should invite us to seek the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, not necessarily to find all the answers to our questions, although the Bible is sufficient to address all of our questions, but all these wives should invite us to seek after the Lord because we are in desperate need of him. Brothers and sisters, whatever time we're going through in this world, let me remind you that Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is our joy. He is our delight. He is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is infinitely wise. We can have confidence that in God's timing, he may give us answers to the wise, just like Job. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And whatever trouble you face, and whatever tragedy you have encountered, and whatever termination you hit, you can say, it is well with my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even when you face the reality of death, I have good news for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to live the perfect life, to die on a cross for the sins of his people, and to rise again to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Yes, Jesus defeated death. And for those who have placed their trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ, we will, you know, we will experience salvation. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, we will experience salvation. Of course, we will experience physical death, but we will not experience spiritual death. Instead, we will spend an eternity with God to worship God for all of eternity, to, to love our Lord, and to enjoy in deep communion with Him forevermore. No power of hell, no schemes of men, and no virus can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is the hope that we can have as believers. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you're watching the live stream this morning, if you're not a believer, whether if you're going through trouble, tragedy, or termination, there's one thing you need to address in your life. Do you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you been living your life as if you did not have a king? Are you trying to do whatever is right in your own eyes? As a matter of fact, are you trying to find a Moab in your own life? 
find, find security and, and comfort in this so-called Moab in your own life. And you try and find Moab to save you from the crisis to come. When in fact, only the Lord Jesus can save you from, what, from, every, from Satan's sin and death. You and I will one day end up like these men in this story. But do you know where you are going after this life? Will your life and your standard of life and will your self-righteousness hold themselves up before God's holiness on the day of judgment? Brother, my friends, apart from Jesus Christ, you will not hold up. And apart from Christ Jesus, there is no hope for you. Do you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior to save you from your sins and the wrath to come? Will you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved? And will you deny yourself and will you pick up the cross and follow Jesus and become his disciples for the rest of your life? There's a story about Mozart, I think it's Mozart. If you don't think it's Mozart, please come and correct me later. There's a story about Mozart and how even as a little kid, he had to hear resolution. When he was in bed and upstairs and someone was playing the piano, and as someone got distracted and stopped just before the last chord, if all, all you music people out there, that may be very annoying for you, and so Mozart, he couldn't stand it. He tromped downstairs, pounded out the resolving chord, and then he went back upstairs and slept without a word. He just had to hear this resolving chord. I want to conclude this message with an unresolved chord, with a tension and with a sad tone, sad tone, because that's how our passage ends. We are at the graveside of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. And Naomi is mourning on the side, along with Orpah and Ruth. And we should mourn with those who mourn. And we should be with those who are suffering and going through times of trouble, going through all these three things that people are going through. You know, we should also face the reality of death as well. And we should also reflect on, on the fact that where, where are we going in this life? Is, the, is my God my king? Let me conclude with this verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning and to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord God, what a story to begin this sermon series. What a story. What an introduction to this amazing story of the book of Ruth. But yet, it is a it is a difficult introduction. It begins with a crisis. And I pray for all of us 
who are going through tragedy, trouble, or even hitting dead ends in life, nowhere else to go. I pray for those who are trying to figure things out in their own. Pray for those who are trying to find a Moab in their own life, when in fact, they should be seeking you, O oh Lord, for refuge and for help. And so I ask that uh, you would please guide us and be with us in the upcoming days and years ahead. Even in a time of, like this, we're so uncertain about what the world will, will, will turn out. But Lord, but Lord Jesus, you're on your throne. You, are, you have authority and you are in control. You are sovereign and that you will work all things for good to those who love you. And I also pray for whoever wants to give their offerings this morning. And I pray that you will bless the offering. And somehow, in some way, that we would, that these offerings will be used for the furthering of your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.